Warning, Star Trek from the holodeck contains adult language and discussions. If you're easily offended, do not continue to listen. Walk it alone! Fire! Holodeck 3 program is reinstated. Open sesame! Commander Klingon vessel. We are energizing transport of him. Now. Welcome, everyone, to Star Trek from the Holodeck. I am Michael, your host and captain of the USS Rainman Digital. You can find all of our shows, past, present, and in the future on iTunes and Spotify. Those are our preferred places because you can leave us reviews and give us a thumbs up, which triggers algorithms that will help others find our show. But if you are a stickler for your favorite podcast feeds you can pretty much find us wherever by simply searching star trek from the holodeck hello david how are you how's it going mike they should uh, like all our new listeners should actually do what changelings do and you know how changelings uh, join the great link mm-hmm. they should jo- join our great link the our rain man great link that sounds very sexual and i'm i'm there for it i'm please join me in this great link where i will revert to a gelatinous state, <laughs> state. <laughs> that, that just disturbs me now <laughs> that just disturbs me now mm-hmm. just thinking about it. i mean me and you just like reverting to gelatinous masses and then merging into it's always been a little weird maybe space nine when odo started merging with people and it was basically oh my god it was creepy they were essentially orgasming that's what it was i know there's gonna be some star trek fans that say shame on you star trek is pure and and virgin clean oh but but it's not star trek is has never been virgin clean it is very sexual yeah, Odo in, wanted in, to get very- his gelatinous form inside Akira. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, wow. It brings a whole new meaning to squirting. Ew. What, David? As long as you have your Bajoran bucket, you should be fine. She has to squirt just, in the bucket. Yeah, just drop yourself right in there. There you go, Odo. <laughs> That's disgusting. That's oh, right. man, that picture is just not good. Yeah, That's what a good. way to start the show. I want to take two on this. <laughs> No, no, no. This is the atypical way we start our show. Is it? Is it the atypical way? Maybe it shouldn't be. (laughs) Because we have to teach Star Trek fans out there. Star Trek is 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 great and it's fantastic, but by far it is not pure. It's (laughs) It's not. It really isn't. I mean, listen, Star Trek. Dude, we could do a whole show at the height of the sexual revolution. Think about it, Mike. We could do a show. Talking about sexuality in Star Trek. Oh, yeah. <laughs> in fact, I'm a little disappointed that uh, in this new Kurtzman era, there's a lot of identity politics, which is fine if that's what you want to do, but not a lot of sexuality. Yeah. It's actually more muted in this new era than it ever has been, surprisingly. Yeah, exactly. So if we can get some more uh, 709 action, please help help me. I'm waiting for it. I mean, even even if it is with Raffi, come on. What are you talking about? When I was growing up, lesbian porn was pretty much all I watched. Was, <laughs> I mean, now I'm more open-minded to all <laughs> facets of the pornographic art form. All right, let's get into this discussion, Dave. Okay, so today we are going to be discussing episode four of Picard's third season. And David, I think it's safe to say, hmm, do I want to say this yet? Yeah, you know what? Yeah. Say it with your chest, Mike. Say it with your chest. Of course, things could go horribly wrong (laughs) before the end of season three. But four episodes in, where we got a definitive ending to a specific story arc. Now, obviously, the revolving or overarching myth arc is still there. Yes. The whole idea about the rise of feder of the federation's enemies circling and coming for picard yes that's still there yeah but they did wrap up the initial story arc of the uss titan lost in this nebula versus vatic and just the way they did that 
and you observe all of the creative avenues that Mantelis and his writers had taken in order to tell the specific story over the course of these four episodes, it is very well done yeah. and properly executed. I it would is. say these are the best four episodes of any opening four episodes of Picard's prior, even, I mean, yeah, of, of any other four, four opening four episodes of the first season and second season. A hundred percent agree with you because out of all the seasons of Picard that we've had, at least in the four episodes, we've actually had very substantial character growth, development, and context. Everything makes sense when you actually see the story that they're saying. It's not like, I hate to say it like, at just basically saying that for the past two seasons, they've just been wasting our time. But mm -hmm. for the past two seasons, they've been just throwing ideas at the wall and seeing what sticks and trying to see, oh, this will make the fans happy. Okay, let's okay. throw that out yeah. there. Yeah. And then, but here in four episodes, we have a very substantial story that wraps around Picard that I feel if you were to actually at this point make season three of Picard season one, this is the right, uh, the right way you start off a series. Well, it makes sense now when you, when you now observe Matalis's whole reset because a season three is in fact a reset a reset that couldn't or wasn't possible unless we were given the second season. So the problems, even though I did enjoy the second season, there were certain little issues here and there, but now we can look back and realize that the little problems that were there in the second season was inherited. Yeah. And now that he was able to wrap up some of those loose ends and do away with some of the, the initial aspects that were introduced by Shaban in season one, now look what we get now that all of that have been, has been w washed away. Yeah. And like the thing about it is, is kind of like when you have in four episodes, we finally get to see Terry Matalis's whole plan and it's only his plan. It's not, there's nothing, nothing tying from Michael Shaban. We've gotten rid of, all the plot holes, all the issues that we've had with season one, season two. And we're beginning to see that season three honestly stands on its own because I don't have to watch season one and season two to know what's going on. Yeah. It'd be nice. I mean, we, we still have characters that were introduced, but they can simply just say, Oh, they're here because of one particular reason. Why? Because I think that, what we're seeing is like, this is what happens when you have someone competent who's a competent writer, knows how to write television mm -hmm. and actually use characters in a television series where I think Michael Shaban was honestly, we make fun of him and everything else, but he was out of his element. He yeah. came into this as a novelist. That is not. That is not, you know, that is not skills that you can actually take over to being a television writer. A novelist, yeah, he could come up with great ideas. And if you look at season one and season, part of season two, sure, they had some really stellar great ideas. But it didn't work because he didn't know the format properly to convey his ideas in a television format. Well, you bring up a great point a few moments ago about, about season three essentially being a standalone. Like you don't really miss much if you miss season one, if you don't watch season one and season two, and that's an actually a nice feature to season three because I know family and friends who are big Star Trek fans and they just couldn't, they struggled with that first season mm -hmm. of Picard and they struggled somewhat with the second season and they quit watching each season halfway through. They just couldn't get into it. Mm -hmm. And I've now told them, listen, Forget season one, forget season two. You can jump in right now and get a full story that feels complete so far yeah. in terms of character development. I don't feel like we're missing much. Seven to nine feels more on par, even though there's a gap there and her moody attitude of the first season and a half, certainly that's going to forever be a part of her core development now. 
But if you go from watching Voyager to this season of Picard, I don't feel like there would be a disconnect no. in her characterization. Think about it. Think about this too, Mike. I mean, the elements that are tied to Shaban and Shaban's uh, series to Matalis's series. Okay. You bring up the seven of nine thing. You could take seven of nine from Voyager and come right to this. And basically your brain as a Star Trek fan could say, yeah, I, I picture this, especially since what did he do in a scene that only took two seconds? Mm-hmm. He literally explained seven nine explains why she's here. And then you have that automatic motivation. Why is she the first officer of the Titan? Because she wanted to actually live up to Picard and Janeway. Right. There you go. That's all you have to do. Same thing with the Riker element, Riker's family. If he, I hate to say this because like I'm, I'm making it sound like the story of his daughter and Deanna from the first season just can be thrown out. But honestly, in four episodes, you pretty much re- told the story of Riker's issues yep. with his wife and his daughter right now. You established that he had a daughter by mentioning her. You established the fact that he lost a son. Why? Because you had this the scene, a really quick scene of showing him and Picard celebrating the birth of his son and then him telling Jack and everyone that he lost his son. He didn't have to go in this gr- like episode-long storytelling of like, this is what happened to my son. It only took like two, like a two minute, two minute dialogue. Well, it shows you that. But Metallus isn't simply throwing out the original playbook for season one and season two. He's taking what he needs to take and he is connecting it in a way that will make sense down the road. If you are watching all seasons and he's doing what any writer should do. Certainly you might want to run from certain things that you don't like that didn't work, but the things that did work like the Riker story in the first season, it was there to give us a little bit of background on what Riker has been up to. Right. Yeah. But now we see it in a more, in its more complete form in season three. And we understand now how Shaban told us what happened to the family. Mm-hmm. Metallus is showing the effect. The effect. That's the difference in writing. He is showing us through a performance via Riker, via Jonathan Franks, showing us what the death in that family did, did to they? them and, and um, to him specifically and making it work. And we're going to get into that. But first, David, we're getting ahead of ourselves here. Uh, this episode was directed by Jonathan Franks. I mean, just watch the episode and that should be evidence enough. It was written by the showrunner himself, Terry Matalas and Sean Tretta. This episode from beginning to end was nearly flawless. Yeah. Not only for all the reasons that you mentioned, Dave, just all of the connective aspects, the overlapping when it needs to be overlapped from the prior season so that we can have greater context, bringing ideas that were briefly introduced in other iterations of track track and then connecting them. I mean, literally this might be one of the best scripts of Picard to date because it uses everything that you're supposed to do in writing a TV show. There are those narrative plants that were established in the first episode of this season and the second episode of the season, the third episode, and then come the fourth episode, he takes those narrative plants and uses them as a general foundation for a lot of the content of the fourth episode. And let's just call it what it is. The conclusion to let's say story arc one of the final season of Picard. I mean, we also had naval combat in a way that I have been fucking wanting for so long. And they shared the wealth of the way they use the companionship and the teamwork of the TNG and the new crew. Riker was in command when needed to be, but when they needed the, the specialized Picard maneuvers, Picard took, took, the, took the reins, took the seat. And it was such a great moment to see the USS Titan fighting and doing, and listen, I know Star Trek isn't about war, but it is naval. And to see those naval combat maneuvers and strategy 
and to see Picard as a tactician. The reason why he is a captain of a starship. You see that. It's much like what we discussed with uh, Strange New Worlds. Yeah. And the episodes where we were able to see Pike's prowess as a naval captain. Yeah. And on top of that, also even Riker's showing his, his competency to be able to do some of the maneuvers he was to learn battle strategies from his enemy where they were using their own momentum. You know, the, the Shrike was using the Titans own momentum during the first battle against it. Riker learned and basically took that, that idea and decided to basically throw that at Vatic's face <laughs> And it was so good. It was it, fun. This is the, this is the thing that I was like really hoping they would do and not feed us nostalgia. Because remember in the last episode, I kind of was worried because like, I was like, Oh my God, I know what's going to happen. They're going to actually have like another legacy character come out of nowhere and save the day. Mm-hmm. You know, Jordy's going to show up with the enterprise. Hey, finally. but instead we finally get to see our characters save themselves. We get to see them do actions that we all know that they're capable. Their individual skills mattered. You mean to tell me, Mike, I had to wait two and a half seasons because we're, we're, we're into season three right now to finally see Picard take command and tell people how to, how to pilot, pilot a ship. Listen, let's not live in the past, Dave. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, you're right. You're not wrong, but at least we're getting it now. We're getting right? it now and I'm happy about it, but it just goes to show that basically it can be done because mm-hmm. I kept seeing people say, Oh, they can't do that now because such and such and this, this is the type of character Picard is now. He can't do it. He's, he's still captain Picard. He knows his skills to actually treat him like a bumbling idiot for the past two seasons. That's what was the detriment of that character. Yeah. Well, you know, you have to have justified reasons for why characters act a certain way. It's writing is very causal. I know that sounds like, well, yes, of course is causal, but. But it's so hard to execute. Yes. So to see they, they set it up again. Metallus didn't throw out what the prior two seasons did with Picard, but they did raise the stakes and build up the momentum so that we can get a justified scene that works in the context of what Shaban had started, Matalus used in second season, and now here in the third season, we see when the going gets tough and friends and family are at the forefront of danger, Picard can step up and do what he does best as a leader. Yes. And that was the strength of the episode in so many ways. It's just the, the camaraderie, the teamwork, you know, everyone coming together and the way the episode ended was one of my favorite aspects of Picard <laughs> all the way through from season one to now, you know, reiterating Starfleet's founding mission, both verbally and visually. It, it showed a concerted effort by the writers to adhere to one of the overall underlying themes of, Star, of the Star Trek universe. You know, as a guiding principle to seek out new life. And yes, the moment was a little heavy handed it was when, a little hokey. when Dr. Crusher said to seek out new life and, then and, Riker, and Riker said, well, let's boldly get the hell the out of here. here. <laughs> I chuckled. I did too. I chuckled at that one. As a fan, I clapped. I was like, that's great. As a TV critic and not a critic as in a value judgments, but someone who critiques and analyzes film. I'm not a fan of self-referential aspects in TV and movies. I feel like a lot of people have gotten way too fast and loose with meta cinema as a whole, speaking directly to the audience. Yeah. Now, if it's used to critique the piece itself, if you're trying to say something about the, the genre that you're working in, or let's say it's problematic history, like for example, Scream talking about some of the stereotypes and tropes in the slasher film. Yes. Cabin in the woods. Also a critique of the slasher film, very self-referential, but there's intent behind it. Mm -hmm. I'm more about that type of meta aspects being interweaved into a television or movie. Yeah. But I can have fun, David, despite what people think I know how to have fun. So a moment like this is a moment of celebration for fans of star Trek. Fortunately, and hopefully 
we won't get a lot of it because this was very small. And also it just was a, a nice moment to reiterate the, the driving force or the driving theme of Star Trek. Well, as this old saying goes, or at least of Starfleet, uh, the fictional in universe, a, a little sugar in your, in your coffee is good. A little sugar. Yeah, there you go. But if you put like a whole cup full of sugar in your coffee, it's a sweet piece of shit. <laughs> so like, that's what I enjoyed. Also the strength of what Terry Manalis is doing. He's understanding that, yes, this is a Star Trek series. I have to cater to the fans. So I'm going to make those references that fans can do the Leonardo DiCaprio and go, Hey, that right there. Right. I, I, I know that. I mean, it's unfortunately we, we, we live in a day and age where a lot of TV shows are being written to in order to cater to that and the meme culture, but the, you know, but the thing but, is, but like you said, a little bit of sugar is good. Is and good. something like this works and that's absolutely just fine. And that's the thing. Terry Matalus has done a masterful job up to this point. Metallus. Metallus has done, <laughs> we're, we're going to mess up his name constantly. I've already done it like 10 times, but he, he, he's done such a masterful job in four episodes of mixing those member berries that are very dangerous to mix in your, in your writing, but still give us just like what you say, context and substance member berries and intertextuality are two different things. And I feel like it's less member berries and more intertextuality things that have to be, there's always going to be some overlapping. You're going to have that when you're dealing with a 50 year plus franchise, you're going to have some of that. All right. So the narrative of the episode was also a highlight, meaning the way it was constructed, it was economical in its approach, careful with its design to convey just the right amount of information without being overly heavy handed. Yeah. We saw this in the scene where we find out that Jack Crusher did attempt to reach out to Picard. Oh man, that scene, especially when you get to the twist in the end of that, it. It's arguably my favorite moment in the whole episode because it just, it took a narrative that we were talking about, about Picard's legacy and turned it, turned it on its head because Picard has been living up to everyone's expectations and trying to be this person that they all see him as because they go to him to hear his stories how did you get out of this? How did, how did you escape this way? And he regales them with these romantic tales. But then he doesn't realize till the very end, all those, all those adventures he had had to have consequences. They had to have some comeuppance, at least just even the little. And that's what the twist in that whole scene where you see Jack sitting there and Picard comes to this realization Oh my God, my son was there when he says, you know, Starfleet's the only family I need. And it's that gut punch that basically hits Picard and he says, essentially he told his son that he doesn't need a son. It does seem like that was implied that he did finally realize at the end of the episode oh, yeah. that I think he had was. in fact met his son prior yeah. Is, but is he that didn't realize you, is, it. Was that a, your interpretation as well? That yeah. he did realize at that moment, the same time the audience was given that information was the same time that Picard also acknowledged and realized that you yes. think? Okay. I think he did. That's what I took away as well. Yeah. He didn't, he didn't know that was his son till that very moment that he remembers. And that's sad because I don't think Picard was necessarily being truthful to the group of Starfleet officers. I feel like he was playing into that expectation that, that you were talking exactly. about. So when he said that Starfleet is essentially the only family he needs, he inadvertently shut down his son, his son. And I don't know if he was necessarily being truthful. I think he, he was towing the company line. Well, exactly. Starfleet is the only family I need because he was speaking to a bunch of young up and coming Starfleet officers that looked up to him. And I think exactly. he was being respectful of their fan. Let's just call it that fan intrigue. Yeah. Yeah. And think about it. I mean, the whole, when you, when you put, let's, let's just say in this season, the whole season starts off Picard talking about his, his legacy. And you know what was hilarious when I thought about it, 
this moment also adds more context to in episode one, when he's with the one Romulan lady in the very beginning, and he wants to run away with her. He just wants to leave. He doesn't want to go in adventures and she, he doesn't want to do that. He wants to settle down. He wants some Romulan poutine. He wants some Romulan poutine probably, but the fact that Picard up to, up to this moment in his legacy is just trying to run away from the image of himself. And unfortunately he had to go back to be Picard. And then this whole time, this realization that I could have had my son, I could have had a family like that, but it was because I put this ideal that is, and it's not saying I, I, I want to preface this. It's not saying that he did a bad thing. Who? Picard. When? When he, when he basically tells, tells, uh, uh, the the Starfleet cadets. Oh my my! Uh, yeah, it, it was the Federation. Yeah, the only family I knew. He, he didn't know his son was there. He didn't know his son was there for one thing, <laughs> yeah. and so it wasn't a bad thing. He was trying to actually, just like what you said, placate to everybody to make them feel good. He didn't realize that basically saying something like that to the wrong person could have consequences, and it just so happened that one person in that room that could have taken it the wrong way was right there. And it was his son. Yeah. It's good stuff. It's really good stuff. I I really like how they're tying everything together. But the big question, Dave is what is up with Jack Crusher? Because towards the end, or I believe it was at the very end of the episode, Jack throws water on his face. He sees red. Yes. Voices are speaking to him. Come find me. Come find me together soon. He sees like some type of vision of of an apocalypse and then a door opening. Do you have any clue, David? Do you have any theories? (laughs) I wanted to jump up and basically start just... Thinking of theories, it could have been. Could have been the God of Shakari. Golly knows. Oh, no. come on. Real <laughs> theories, David. Come on. I was thinking like, okay, <laughs> they got to actually be tying this to Picard's legacy. So it's something about. Yeah. It's, it, has some, it has something to do with Picard's past. And I was like thinking to myself, what is the chances that. What is the chances that basically Jack isn't from this universe? How? He's from a parallel universe. How? We know Captain Picard had relations with Dr. Crusher. Had relations. However, I, I don't want multiverse. You could have a, multi- so a multiversal tired. thing happen here. I don't think that's what it is. Because anything is. Opening a door? Come on. And we definitely know that Picard, his legacy is tied to him. Bouncing around in parallel universes, Mike. When? When is that his legacy? Tasha with Tasha Yar. His Tasha Yar is not his legacy. It's not his legacy, but it's part of his story. That's part of his story. I think, dude, you can say that about any Star Trek character. That's the problem. (laughs) That's the problem. You you have better theories. Just go back to Q. (laughs) It's Q. (laughs) Jack Jack Crusher is actually Q in disguise. I have no idea, but it, it has to be connected to. Okay, so if they were if originally, I thought they were after him simply out of revenge, not anything necessarily to do with Jack Crusher, but it had to do with Picard. Yes. Now it seems like it has more to do with Jack Crusher himself, whoever he is. Now we obviously he is Picard's son, but what else is he? Yeah. There's obviously more to him than meets the eye. And because this show is titled Star Trek Picard, and because, as we know, just based on the opening four episodes, though there are a lot of characters, there is an ensemble cast, everything revolves around Picard. Even when you have specific moments pertaining to Riker, it all funnels right back to Picard, which is how a show should be written when the title character is Picard, Picard. and it's in the name of the show. So it can't be tied to anything Beverly did. No, so whatever's happening, it has there has to be some indirect or direct connection to Picard himself. I, I don't really want to theorize much more because I know we're going to be vastly wrong. Is he partly Q? 
No, come see that now. That's the typical David. That's the David. Is he part Q? Is he part Q? He could be a hybrid. No. <laughs> no. no. <laughs> Why is it that even though there's two monitors right in front of me, I can see like this sinking. Like no, please no, David. No. Uh, <laughs> I'm telling you, we had one Q die, Mike. I know. What if the universe needs David, another Q? People who are new listeners are going to think you're being <laughs> for real, okay? And you're going to make them think we're stupid. Jack Crusher is the new Q. Too late. Think about it. I mean, we have we have Wesley out there as a traveler. Why can't we have Jack be the next Q? I'm never going to ask you about <laughs> theories again. <laughs> okay, so we have the mention of Wolf 359. Dude. The ever-present traumatic event that oh Picard God. is continually blamed for. And I it's, rightfully so. Now, this is something that I did mention. I want to say I talked about it at the top of the show. Or, yeah. the, or I'm sorry, the the very first episode for this season when we were talking about why Shaw refuses to call seven seven and calls her by her human name or her birth name, Hansen. Yeah. And I had said, well, you got to realize there's going to always be some prejudice because, and I had, I believe I had used 9-11 as an example. Mm -hmm. To this day, people don't forget 9-11. It was a big deal and it, it scarred people. It changed the way people perceived certain individuals for a very long time. So of course, an event like a mass Borg assimilation that that was intent on the genocide of humanity a massacre. And we know that wolf three, five, nine was the massacre to end all massacres. Yes. That obviously that's going to have some history there. It's going to linger and people are not going to always, they're not going to trust the Borg. Yeah. Even if it comes with a friendly face, you're not going to fully trust them. It's, and it's also hard to trust a man that has the same face as Locutus, even though he wasn't in control, he was robbed of his autonomy. But people aren't going to care about that. No, people aren't going to think about what it did to him, him and that he, to this day, also essentially is living in perpetual pain with this traumatic event. His, yeah. the, the robbing of his, of his individuality and the, you know, being able to witness, think about the horrors that he witnessed through his very eyes that he was not in control. People aren't stopping to think about that. Yeah. They're thinking about what happened that, to them, what that face represented and what it did to their loved ones as well as themselves. So it does make sense. And that scene was one of the most powerful scenes oh my God, dude, yeah. in all of Star Trek Picard. It yeah. is, it is what makes Star Trek, Star Trek. So, and you do realize that basically what Modelos was able to do was give Metallus Metallus was able to do was give us a new character in Captain Shaw and not make him just one dimensional in, in two episodes, we understand Shaw now more than ever after him, re, re, uh, telling his story about, you know, Wolf three, five, nine. And then us as Star Trek fans, we also understand that too, because remember that's what, that's what happened to Cisco. Yeah, I, Cisco came from Wolf Three Five Nine, and his trauma about that. So we all understand that. Yeah, I like that you bring up the the depth of Captain Shaw. Captain Shaw, now because that's something that I think a lot of Star Trek fans just we kind of go with the flow now at this point that there's going to be asshole captains and asshole admirals, but that are context. obstacles. This has to context now. Correct. So it wasn't just more the same because, hey, that's what we're used to in Star Trek. It's almost a trope at this point. And think about but it. Instead, he takes that character and gives him his own backstory that then funnels right back to who? The lead of the show, Picard. And it has relevance not just to Shaw, but also to our core character, Picard. And think about it. I mean, now we understand Shaw's not just his motivation, but his characteristics. The reason why he's so orderly and by the book is because he's obsessed with the fact that he was chosen out of 50 people randomly to go take on the ship. And what did he say? What did he like? He was like in tears saying, why did she choose me? That's survivor's guilt. And now when I saw that, I'm like going, a light bulb went in my head and says, this is why he's so orderly. This is why he's obsessed with, with, order and doing things by the book because 
his own trauma centers around the fact that someone went against the book and randomly chose him to, and he watched 40 of his friends die where he was the last one. And what did he call himself? Lucky number 10. And I was like going the way he said it, I'm like, Oh my God, this character is like suffering from survivor's guilt where it's like, Originally, we saw Shaw as his hatred toward Picard was like, you know, we thought it'd be, oh, it's just like the Admiral in season one. Here, it's now more established. No, it's more than that. It's a personal vendetta that he has against Picard because to, to, to add on to what your point earlier was, that face of Locutus is what is singed in Shaw's mind. He doesn't know what happened to Picard. He doesn't care what Picard was going through during that time. The only thing he cares about is 40 of his friends died Mm -hmm. while he was selected to live. Yep. That's what matters to him. He doesn't care that Picard is dealing with like his own traumas. Shaw's got his own trauma that he has to deal with. And when that happened, dude, I immediately said, I want to see more of this character now. And think about that. I want to see more of this character when in season one and season two, they would try to force feed us new characters. And I'm like going, I can't get behind this character. Why am I caring about this character? Mm -hmm. In one episode, in one piece of dialogue, we have a full motivation and understanding of a, of a brand new character. And he, by the end of it, we're like going, okay, he's not perfect. But he's one of the Titan crew now. But you also understand where he's coming from now. And you're not simply looking at him as some asshole who who is simply a plot obstacle. He is. Yes, he started as a plot obstacle and became a fully realized character in this episode and a justified character. He actually belongs in the show. He has purpose. He has intent. And it, it works in so many different ways. There was an interview with Jonathan Frakes. I want to say it was published in the Hollywood reporter. And he talks about that scene because that was the talked about scene. Yeah. Uh, I believe Jerry Ryan had posted that. uh, The actor that plays Shaw, Todd Stashwick. She had posted, I believe it was a gif of that scene and said, this is a absolute masterclass in acting. And it just got so many favorites and so or if so many people favored the tweet and retweeted it because it was an exceptional scene and that scene which i did not pick up on until i read this interview uh-huh. and it makes perfect sense now and i'm ashamed of myself for not picking up on it but apparently the the whole slow burn way shaw unpacks this emotionally scarring first encounter with picard it harkens back to a famous scene from <laughs> A Steven Spielberg classic. Yes. Which I, is, I, I saw this right away. Which is Jaws, where yep. shark hunter Quint regales about the USS Annapolis. Yes. And dude, I got chills when later on, when I rewatched that scene, and then Jaws is my favorite movie of all time. And throughout the first time I watched it, I'm like going, God, I'm getting similar feelings of something. I couldn't pinpoint it. And then I watched it a second time and then I immediately went to YouTube and I put, put in, you know, like, this seems like Quint from Jaws. Mm -hmm. And then I put it in and I watched the Quint scene, which I love. I love that scene. I have it memorized to verbatim and he hits it note for note and gets the same feeling where at the very end, for those that have watched Jaws, it's that moment that we all see Quint and now we see him not as this asshole who's trying to kill a shark. It's this guy trying like Moby Dick to be like Captain Ahab. He is traumatized Mm -hmm. that he is a survivor that watched his friends get eaten by a bunch of sharks. Yeah. Of course he's going to want to hunt down all these sharks. That's who he is. And I'm glad they didn't go the route where they just ramped it, wrapped up shot to 11 and he wants to kill all Borg. He just has a dislike for Borg. That's it. Yeah. That's more. And, and in doing so, it makes him more realistic. It makes him more human. Yeah. So Jonathan Frank says in the interview that you steal from the greats, which that's pretty much a common sentiment, right? Within, within film circles and some writing circles. 
And he says that we definitely referenced and talked about that scene early on. I try to watch Jaws every year, he says, and that scene was referenced by a lot of us on set. I believe Terry wanted that to be tonally what we were aiming for from the very beginning. Given the length of Shaw's speech and his emphasis on the traumatizing selection process that put him on an escape pod that day, instead of some of his friends, Franks was worried that parts of this critical scene and Stashwick's moving performance might get excised in post. Fortunately, it was not. Every bit, according to Franks, stayed in. Well, listen, that would be a travesty from the editing department as well as the showrunner who typically will sit in during the editing process or at least reviews the cut. You don't cut those scenes. It's what destroyed, in my opinion, part of The Last Jedi when Ryan Johnson cut a natural and organic reaction from Mark Hamill when he finds out that Han Solo died or, yeah, when he finds out his friend died. Mm-hmm. And what did Ryan Johnson do? He cut it because he it wasn't in the script and he didn't want him to cry. Yeah. Like, what? And, and remember, you, he, him and his douche producer were making fun of Mark Hamill during that scene. Yeah, you don't... Listen, when you, you hire certain actors to... They're not just puppets. You don't control them. <laughs> you hire them for their abilities to take what's on that page and make it their own, make it work. Cause many times what's on that page doesn't actually work. Mm -hmm. The actor, if they're worth what you're paying them to do, will make it work and change it if need be. So don't cut, don't cut, don't cut. Especially when you're dealing with a streaming show, there's no reason to cut, let it run as long as it feels natural. And Ultimately, that's the reason why that scene worked, Dave, because there was emphasis on its slow burn mentality. They allowed the camera to sit. And that's a problem we have in a lot of modern television. Seems like a lot of writers and directors are afraid to let the camera just sit. Yeah. They want to move from a wide shot, then a slow track in, then a medium shot. Then we're going to get a reaction shot. And they did do that. They had proper coverage. Mm -hmm. But. They also allowed the camera to sit. It was a slow scene. And, and dude, this made me giddy as a filmmaker because I went back and I analyzed that entire scene. If you watch it from the very beginning, before Shaw gets there, mm -hmm. it's the same setup and pacing as the original Jaws scene where they're all happy. And in the Jaws scene, it starts off with Hooper and um, Brody comparing tattoos and they're like making fun and they're having a jovial time. They're making jokes. And then Hooper notices the tattoo on Quint's shoulder where he says, Oh, what's that? And, uh, they make a joke and then Quint just basically says, uh, you know, it's uh it's an old army thing from the USS Indianapolis. And the whole scene changes in tone and it's a, it suddenly goes from jovial and funny to dark and serious. You watch the scene with, with Shaw. He literally, they're, they're having a great time. They're regaling uh, the, uh, about this adventure of Picard's. Everyone's happy. Shaw comes in, kills the tone. And basically when he looks at Jack and says, Oh, did he forget to tell you about Wolf three, five, nine? Same timing, same tone as when Quint says, yeah, I was on the USS Indianapolis. It gave me chills when I came to realize that. And I'm happy you brought it up because at least it proves to me that I am seeing things as a filmmaker and a, and, and a lover of film. When I get to see someone translate that type of emotion and feeling that you get from a different film from a different year a different genre and you can transition it into a totally different genre like star trek think about that you went from jaws to star trek well yeah well it's just a scene i mean it's not like it's uh it's just a yeah you're using a scene for inspiration the, the right? scene it, for inspiration but the fact that they get the the tones just perfectly yeah it's amazing yeah it aligns it's an appropriate reference or homage, right? Yes. It worked for that scene. So one of the 
other aspects of this episode that was very deep and I will definitely say unexpected was from the angle or perspective of Riker. And we find out now what's really going on with his, this family drama, I guess you can say, I want to, I think we questioned, we even posed the question, like what's happening with him and Deanna Troy. I want to say we talked about that briefly in our first episode discussion for season three. And now we find out it is simply about Riker and he's running from his family life due to this inability to reconcile with his own mortality after the death of his son. Yeah. And when he said he looked down into that, that the burial where they were burying his son, he said, even though it was only six feet deep as that coffin was being dropped, there was just nothing. Yeah. That is exactly how people who have these, I'm not sure of the wording or what it's called, but there's these existential revelations that people have. When you, when you go from a more carefree um, view of the world and then there's a turning point in your life that completely changes your perspective on life and your own mortality. And then you realize that this is all life amounts to is a pit of darkness. That means absolutely nothing. And then very seldom do we get moments where characters in Star Trek talk about the end of their life. Certainly we had William Shatner's Kirk in various movies deal with getting older, Mm -hmm. but an existential aspect hasn't always been there when it comes to our characters and to have a character even utter the idea of an afterlife that, you know, we've been everywhere across the universe. I never saw that there's anything after death. Yes. That's a very powerful aspect. And it also speaks to the times. I feel like we're in a very existential time period and something that Star Trek has always done. Well, is not always, you know, sociopolitical. I know that's usually the go-to. People point to Star Trek and say, well, you know what? It, it refracts the, the, the society's uh, social struggles and cultural movements of the time. Absolutely, it does that. But Star Trek also reflects or refracts the current view, popular view of the people of that time. Yeah. And there are many of us that are stuck in a bit of an existential crisis. So to bring that to the forefront is also very telling with how Matalus is trying to wrap in our own cultural existentialism into Star Trek and, 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 and vocalize it and reconcile with it. And make it digestible. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, like doing something like this could be very heavy handed and it could seem too much. But the amazing thing that because I how thought, do you describe how do you existentialism? Describe existentialism you, is when you're trying to describe existentialism or even nihilism, it tends to be a wordy type of thing. Yeah. Because how do you actually show and not tell? And and over the course of four episodes, we have seen Riker, Riker. act very differently. He there is a different tone and demeanor to everything he does, and now we understand. And now we understand because of the context, right? And it's like. I got the same vibes that I got with Riker's story now with, it reminded me of a Voyager episode that me and you talk about a lot, which is the Neelix episode where Neelix has to deal with the fact that to him, that his culture was wrong. His culture was wrong about the afterlife and there's no afterlife. One of the most morbidly depressing episodes of Star Trek ever. And it was so fucking amazing. And, and if you think about it, I mean the same kind of context is like what we see Matalas t- uh, tackle here with, with Riker's story. And it, I am so happy in one episode, dude, we have gotten so much substance to our characters, mm-hmm. like depth to our characters. And we, we get, it really feels like this is how you pay respect to legacy characters or characters in general. Because, like, now we actually see and care about Riker even more now than anything because now we understand why he was away from Deanna. And that scene with him trying to actually 
trying to actually give a final message to Deanna mm-hmm. and he couldn't do it. And it was so heart wrenching because it's very human. That is like someone definitely at an existential crisis wanting to cry out, but he holds back because he's not sure. Yeah. And then you get that little, that tidbit with Deanna right there. And think about the power of that too, is like, he is so having so much of a crisis. Deanna couldn't read him. Yeah. Well, that's it. Isn't that what he said? Yeah. That when you live with an empath and they can't even read, read anything you. from <laughs> read you. From I mean, imagine a woman who's used to feeling everything around her and she can't even really connect with her husband because there's just nothing there that he doesn't, he's not feeling anything any longer, but because star Trek isn't necessarily a show about existentialism, it's more about optimism, optimism. right? Yeah. They were able to remedy much of his problems by the end of this four episode arc and not by, drag it out by, yeah. And they brought him meaning and he realized that his meaning and his purpose, which is if people know anything about existentialism, existentialism isn't necessarily about wallowing yes in in this in your crisis when it comes to the philosophical aspects of existentialism it's about finding meaning in the absurd yes in the existential and that is exactly what Riker did by the end of the episode he rediscovered his faith in his career his purpose he found his purpose which is, was right in front of him the whole time and the wit- the witnessing of new life is what saved him yeah and it reminded him of what everything is about that was a powerful message and a way and a nice way to round out that bit of Riker's story up to this point. Now we are running out of time, David. We have very little time left. We have to wrap in the next four minutes here. Got it. So we don't have a lot of time to dwell on Vatic, but what the fuck is up <laughs> with that scene? Oh my God, dude. She's a changeling. She's uh, an absolute changeling. Okay. So that's easy enough to, to surmise, right? Yes. But we've never seen anything like that before. She chops off a bit of her arm. It then goes from a gelatinous state to a form of a figure, scary looking figure that then communicates with her. Now, David, I'm a deep space nine fanatic. Yeah. I don't seem to remember that they could communicate in that way. Oh yeah. Remember Odo you had a similar scene. Yeah. When Odo is shown an infant, it's one of the deep space nine episodes yeah. where oh, the okay. changing showed Odo a uh, infant changeling and the infant changeling did the same thing okay, that, that yes. happened when he takes a form and it mimics Odo's face. Yes. That's different though. It communicated because they were in the same room. They were present. This seemed like this was interstellar communication. Well, you gotta, you gotta ask yourself, okay, this is the big thing that I was like, when it comes to this, I'm not going to go too much because just like you said, we're running out of yeah, time, 30 seconds, but like this is establishing that the great link there's another great link because you they've already established that they had breakaway changelings yeah so you so, think this is just recontextualizing canon a bit like they're adding a little the, more they're adding a little bit more to the changeling race they just have to be careful because they if do. they could communicate like this this would have solved many of their communication problems they had when they were infiltrating earth Unless, unless the change, this changing race can be different than the ones that Odo's part of right now, because there, there are different, but there are different offshoots. Yeah, there are different, uh, David. Okay. Let's say you, me, and our other hosts on this network decide to go to move to, move to different places. Thomas goes to the, the white mountains. I go and further South into the, the Mexican desert. It's not going to change the core features of my humanity. I'm not going to suddenly grow three arms and be a different species, but we would still be able to communicate. Yeah. <laughs> but you're using that. This is a separate group of shapeshifters to justify the differences in the things they do. They don't gain different abilities because they've separated. That's the, that's the issue. I'm, I'm almost saying that they can. That's like saying Klingons, you know, because, move to one planet and they now have five arms. Because you got to remember, 
Odo learned a lot of abilities that he did not have. Okay, that is fair. Now, this is a new discovery of their abilities. Yeah. Just, just like Odo, as he learned more about changing his form, he was yeah. able to understand what it was all about. There was new experiences. So if perhaps the changelings are evolving yes. and they've learned more of what they can do, then I'll be okay with that. That's but what that, I'm thinking okay. is that they're evolving because you got to remember that the great link gets stronger or the changing race gets stronger. The more that they actually come and merge. So think about it. If we're dealing with, well, let's say 50 years, it's probably about how long, 20 years. We got to keep it short. Yeah. yeah. After DS nine, then the changeling race has probably learned a ton of stuff. Yeah. Well, hopefully we'll get there and if and if we are wrong and we have seen them communicate in this way because as i always say 50 years of star trek can is hard to keep track please (laughs) tweet us let us know either send me an email which is listed on our i believe our podcast feed or you can tweet us at from the holodeck or post on our facebook page facebook.com slash star trek from the holodeck and let us know we are wrong set us straight last bit here dave a little bit of controversy here, but we do have to bring it up. Okay. A gentleman, a troll, let's just call him. Mm, you decide if this is a troll or a legitimate complaint slash question. A d- individual on Twitter reached out to Terry Metalis after this episode and had questions pertaining to the changeling on board the USS Titan and his Bajoran bucket. Yes. He says, why do all the changelings now have a Bajoran bucket, which they carry around with them like the one Odo had in DS9? This was not a feature of the founders and was unique to Odo. Odo's bucket was gifted to him by a scientist. Changelings rest formlessly anywhere. I have to agree with him. He is right. Now, Terry Matalus replies and says this particular changeling, he doesn't really address the question. Yeah. He almost circumvents the question, but he says this particular changeling is going to have a 12 issue backstory for IDW that gets into his Bajoran like bucket, mm-hmm. even though it's indeed. I don't know what that word is. Uh, construction. You'll see on D space nine 11. I don't know what that means. It's tribal. Yes, he says. So I I don't know what that all that means. Although I will check out that twelve issue IDW comic book, but I like you can't rely on a comic book to explain away canon because it it is the gentleman is correct. It is and we've unique. never Bajorns or changelings didn't carry around buckets. However, Odo that was exclusive to Odo. It was exclusive to Odo. But I just thought about this. Can you tell me if this is this is hokey or okay. It's cute. It, it no, <laughs> thank God. But if it if it if he says similar to Odo, mm-hmm. wouldn't it make sense that Odo uh, Odo j- joined up with the Great Link and showed him the that. bucket trick? <laughs> I hate to say I hate to say it, but basically, it, it was established that when you actually join the Great Link, you share some of yourself uh, yeah. with the entire Great Link. You you are correct, and in essence, all those changelings pick up your habits. Say no more, Dave. You could be correct. And it isn't hokey. It sounds hokey, but as I say very often, anything can work if it's executed correctly. So if they were to explain this, I do feel like they need to tackle it in this show. Yeah. Because that to anyone who's watched Deep Space Nine, that is a bit of a red flag. It is. It was a red flag to me too, but I had to... Because he's done such a good job up to this point, uh, yes. I'm going to actually, as scary as it sounds, give some leeway. <laughs> well, that's what we, that we always do that. If you are a competent writer and you're giving us a well-written show as a whole, we don't nitpick. Now, if this was Mike Shaban up to his same old fuckery, we would be holding his feet to the fire currently and, yes. and maybe even put him in the fire. All right, Dave, final thoughts. We don't have time for, so just... Uh, give me your your RMD score, brief, right. really quick. RMD score, really quick. It quit. Uh, quit. Uh, quick is a ninety-five. I gave this a ninety-five. I'm really getting solidly behind this show now. All right, I'm giving it a ninety-seven. 
I want to give it a higher score. Believe me. I would give it a 99%, but that changeling Bajoran bucket does Mm -hmm. bother me a bit. You open up a lot of questions. That's the thing. He did a fantastic job dealing with characters, but he also opened up questions. Now are you going to, you know, capitalize on them? Right. Correct. All right. I want to thank everyone for listening. Be sure to check us out on our Patreon page for more Star Trek from the holodeck content. Head over to patreon.com slash rain man digital. Thank you, David. Thank you. Live long and prosper. I couldn't help but notice your pain. My pain. It runs deep. Share it with me. End simulation.